<laughs> All right, welcome everyone. Welcome again to the Gospel of John. Thanks for tuning in tonight and thanks for those who are here in the classroom here. And uh, it's, uh, we're on week four of uh, the second part of John. We're in John chapter 11. Let's have a word of prayer, then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your grace and kindness to us this day, for watching over us, for bringing us to this point, for supplying us all that we need. Thank you, Father, for the great salvation we enjoy through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're thankful for the opportunity we have to study about our Lord's ministry and uh, His work uh, as... Uh, as your servant and as our Savior and his ultimate work on the cross that we'll be looking at in the next few weeks. So we pray that you will uh, enable us to grasp and understand these uh, great truths and the significance of these things in our own lives as we look at this tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking, as I said, at uh, John chapter 11 tonight, and we started this last week, the raising of Lazarus, and uh, we are in John chapter 11 here. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem. I mean, he's near Jerusalem. This says Jerusalem, but, you know, he's not, as we see, he's... He actually goes to Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. He'll go up to Ephraim. Uh, here he's in Bethany, which is just a suburb of Jerusalem at the present time. Um, here we are um, uh, right before the Passover. Of course, we're going to get to that when we get to chapter 13. We'll get to the Passover. So we are sometime in the spring or you know late fall the, the sometime probably we don't, we don't know exactly because we don't have any time marker here the last time marker we had was december of 8029 we had the festival of dedication remember that we call hanukkah today we talked about in chapter 10 and that's the last time marker and then we don't have a time marker again until we actually get uh, to uh, the uh, last uh, week of our Lord's life, the triumphal entry and so forth, all that goes with that and the crucifixion. So we know we're sometime here. Uh, we assume this happened January, February, Mar you know, it's hard to say, sometime around A.D. 30. <clears throat> uh, this is in Bethany uh, that we're talking about which is just on the east side of the Mount of Olives. So uh, um, if you look at the Temple Mount and you look at Israel, ancient Israel there, um, uh, between that and the Mount of Olives is a valley, a deep valley, a little valley there, Kidron Valley. And the Mount of Olives is higher than the Temple Mount. So if you ever go to Jerusalem, you stand on the Temple Mount, you go to Jerusalem, you look up, you'll see the Mount of Olives as we've seen. And then on the other side of the Mount of Olives, as you go down the slope, you have villages there and Bethany is the one we're talking about. We started this last week, 
we looked at uh, the first uh, about 10 verses here of the raising of Lazarus. Uh, it tells us, remember, beginning in verse 1, that Lazarus was from Bethany, where Mary and Martha lived. And uh, so he's sick. They send word to Jesus. They said, Lord, the one you love is sick. And Jesus says then uh, to his disciples, obviously, this sickness will not end in death. It's for God's glory. So this, so this all happened. This is, reminds us of John chapter 9. Remember the man born blind? Why was he born blind? Well, so that God's glory could be displayed, so that the Son could be glorified, so Jesus could do this miracle, so people would recognize him, who he was. And so this is the same thing that Jesus is talking about. It tells us in verse 5 that Jesus loved Martha and her sister, um, uh, sister and Lazarus, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So we have this very close relationship that, you know, the, the Gospels don't tell us about all these things, but there's a, obviously a very intimate relationship he has with this family. But when, he, when we're, we're kind of startled in verse 6 because we assume when we hear he's sick, Jesus is going to go there. Uh, but no, he doesn't go there. He stays two more days uh, where he's at. He's, he's outside of uh, Jerusalem right now because, remember, he has had to leave on occasion because the, uh, the religious leaders have plotted to kill him. They've determined we're going to kill this guy. That's it. He's gone. And so he has to, he's, he was in the temple courts in John chapter 10 teaching at the Feast of Dedication. And, you know, they were going to kill him then. He had to escape. So he has to go outside Jerusalem and so forth. Uh, and so uh, he's going to stay two more days, which is a little startling, but we know he has a purpose. He actually wants Lazarus to die so he can raise him from the dead. In verses 7 through 10, we see the alarm of the disciples, and the alarm there is just what I was talking about. They said, hey, what do you mean you're going back to Bethany? Bethany is just, you know, a suburb of Jerusalem. And you remember, Rabbi, they say in verse 8, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Is that, you know, is that wise? <laughs> and Jesus gives this little explanation about, you know, there, there's, still, there's 12 hours of daylight before the darkness comes. And he's kind of using that to illustrate his ministry. I'm in the daylight of my ministry, and nothing can really touch him because his hour has not come. The darkness hasn't come. Now it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. And so he says, I've still got to do what I have to do in the daylight here that God has uh, ordained for me to do. And so, uh, and one of these things is to raise Lazarus from the dead. So now we come to uh, uh, three here in parenthesis, the purpose of Jesus. This is 11, 11 through 16. Let's read that verse 11. After he said this, <clears throat> he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. I mean, there wasn't much you could do for people in that day. You know, sleep, often even our days, sleep is a kind of a healing thing, isn't it? But they're hoping he'll be better. And uh, Jesus said, uh, they said, you know, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. And, you know, sometimes in the Bible, uh, 
sleep is used by the Apostle Paul and others to speak of our death, our Christian death as we sleep. Uh, it, it kind of blunts the force of death. Our death is not, is not the, uh, the terrible thing it is for the unbeliever. <laughs> our death is just, we go from immediately from this life to be with Christ. So it's, it's, it's not a terrible, terrible, an awful thing. I mean, it's still uh, an enemy. We'd rather not die. We'd rather the rapture come and, you know, that would be it. It's amazing. Uh, you know, it's just part of our depravity. But when you're old like me, you wish more for the rapture than when you did you were young, you know. <laughs> I mean, these 18-year-olds, they, you know, they try to say, yeah, Lord, come, but they'd rather get married, you know. <laughs> they'd rather find a girlfriend, you know. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying that's how it is. It's just depravity. We, we, I mean, there's a sense in which we all do as Christians long for the coming of the Lord, and that would be better and all that. But um, there's a sense in which uh, uh, <laughs> I can remember in my earlier days, you know, there's a lot of prophecy preaching, a lot of, Jesus is coming, you know, here's the signs, and this is Russia. Boy, remember all the Russia stuff? Boy, what would they make of it now? What would Jack Van Impey make of? <laughs> he had this, you know, famous sermon in record, the coming war with Russia. What would he make of Russia now? You know, I mean, he would, he would be on his high horse, you know, now. about. Um, yeah, I mean, all of them would be, you know. You know, we always try to teach, you know, in seminary we try to teach the students, you know, you just don't know. You don't know if this is the end time or not. It, it could be another thousand years. You just, it looks like it. You know, it looks kind of like it. Maybe it could be, but you can't be sure that these events match up exactly with what prophecy and revelation are teaching. But, um, but I, I can just think about older preachers when I was younger. They were, you could sense that <laughs> they were telling you, oh, this is it, get ready because they wanted the rapture to happen, you know, more themselves, you know. So we, you know, and certainly that would be a wonderful thing, but it may not happen, and so we may have to face death, and, uh, but it'll be more like a sleep in that sense. It won't be the terrible and awful experience that it's going to be, unfortunately, for unbelievers. So I say here, Jesus now gives a further reason for going to Judea. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to wake him up. Though Lazarus is the friend of Jesus and his disciples, only Jesus is the resurrection and the life, as we'll see in verse 25, who will wake him up. So, as I said, this sleep is misunderstood by the disciples who thought, you know, he'd passed the crisis. They thought he'd passed the crisis. Maybe his fever is broken and, and, you know, he's on the road to recovery. Verse 14. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake... I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Say, so in order to correct the misunderstanding of the disciples, Jesus tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Jesus also informs his disciples that he's glad he was not present when Lazarus died. We presume that's because he would have prevented his death and therefore removed the opportunity to provide this faith-engendering resurrection. Thomas' words, let us also go, 
that we may die with him, referring to dying with Jesus, which he assumed to be a virtual certainty if they would venture into Judea again. So that's what he's referring to. Let us go that we may die with him. He's assuming, well, this time we'll never be able to escape the religious leaders. They'll get, they'll get you this time and, hey, we'll just be there with you, Jesus, and so forth. So it's, you know, it's kind of interesting when you think about, when we think of Thomas, we think of one thing, doubting Thomas, you know, as we'll see later on in John. You know, I'm not going to believe, I'm not going to believe he's raised from the dead until I see those marks in his hands, you know, in his feet. So, uh, but he, here's this man we call doubting Thomas. He shows tremendous devotion and courage here, doesn't he? He's willing to, to go with Jesus, even if that means his own death. Well, that brings us to verse 17 then, the, uh, the miracle. First, we see Jesus and Martha in verses 17 through 27. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So by the time Jesus arrived at Bethany, Lazarus had been in the grave, we're told, four days. This along with verse 39, where we read, Take away the stone, he said, but Lord said Martha, the, sist the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. That may indicate uh, that people here shared a rabbinic belief that the soul hovers over the body of the deceased person for the first few days, but as soon as it sees its appearance change, that is, decomposition sets in, it departs. That's There's some evidence of that Jewish belief outside the Bible. That may be what they're, when she remarks about, you know, he's already been in the tomb four days. Uh, he's, there's no chance of reviving him. Uh, he's not going to wake up. His body's decomposing. At this point, death is irreversible, she's saying. And so uh, there are these mourners who have come from, as we mentioned, you know, Bethany's about one and three quarter miles, technically exactly, maybe. So uh, the implication there is that many mourners would have come. It's not that far. So there's a lot of people here uh, to see this miracle of Jesus. So this is going to be a tremendous miracle uh, that we're going to be talking about here, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and it's going to be witnessed by many, many people. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Uh, Lord, Mar Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Uh, Martha appears to as the more aggressive sister, just as she does in the incident, you remember in Luke 10, uh, where he comes to their household and there's preparation about the food and so forth. As, as such, she is the one who goes out to meet Jesus as he approached. Her words, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, are not a rebuke, but you know, probably words of grief and faith. You know, if you'd have just been here, I wish she would have been. She's confident that if Jesus had been present while her brother lay ill, Jesus would have healed him. 
Her statement in verse 22, that is, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask, that could be interpreted, as I say, in italics there, to mean that her faith was so strong as to believe that Jesus was capable of resurrecting, you know, Lazarus even now, you know. I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Now, the text doesn't say that. It doesn't say, you know, that she's thinking about the resurrection. And later on in verse 39, it would seem to suggest that that's not what this verse means. Because notice verse 39, Jesus says, take away the stone. But this same Martha says, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad over. He's been, he's been, for he has been there four days. So, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like she thinks Jesus is capable of doing anything in verse 39. She sounds like, hey, it's too late. Too late, Jesus. Too late. You know, he's been there four days and got a bad odor. Nothing can be done at that point. So it seems doubtful that uh, that's what she's saying here. I know you could raise him any time because she seems to, to question that here. Perhaps we should understand this statement. I know now that, that, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Um, um, perhaps we should understand this saying that even now she's not lost confidence in Jesus. Um, that is, even though he didn't come, I haven't lost confidence in you. I know you have this intimacy with the Father, an intimacy that, that guarantees that you'll get what you ask, that you have this uh, this unprecedented fruitfulness in your prayers. I know that, you know, when you pray, you will get what you, you want. I mean, that, so apparently she's only expressing, you know, continuing faith in Jesus. She hadn't lost her faith here in Jesus. Even though he didn't arrive in time to help her brother, she's not, you know, blaming him. She's not lost her faith. Even though you're not able to help him, you know, even though I know you're not able to help him now, Lord, I know God still grants your request. I know that you're, you, know, you still have this intimacy with the Father. Maybe that's more what she's saying. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus now promises the immediate resurrection of Lazarus. Your brother will will rise again. But she understands Jesus is only, you know, comforting, comforting her with a well-accepted truth. The resurrection at the last day. Yeah, everybody believes that. But Jesus is saying more than that. And notice what he says here. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So uh, he makes this amazing statement here. It always, uh, when I read this, 
you know, when I just read my Bible, it, it kind of gives me kind of chills. I don't know if it does you, but I read this statement. I am the resurrection and life. The one who believes in me will, shall, shall live, will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. It's such a bold and, you know, a confident, assuring statement. I say here, Jesus then pointed out to her that the resurrection power, whether at the last day or at the present moment, resided in him. I am the resurrection and the life, you know. <laughs> I've got all the power. I'm God. So you don't have to wait to the last day. I'm the resurrection power. Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place in the last day to a personalized faith in Him who alone can provide it. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life, we should understand Him to be distinguishing between future resurrection and eternal life. I am this future resurrection and I am life. I, I am eternal life. The first component, resurrection, is explained in the following clause. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. So there's this resurrection part. I'm the resurrection. And that means that the one who believes in me will live even though they die. The second component, life, eternal life, is explained in the next clause. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So this whoever lives by believing in me is you and I now. He's talking here about spiritual life, what we, you know, regeneration, being born again, spiritual life. So whoever has life by believing in Jesus will never die. That is eternal death. Yeah, they may experience physical death, you know. Uh, the one who believes in me will live even though they die physically. And whoever lives by believing in me, whoever has spiritual life, will never really die eternally. They'll never really experience eternal death. So Jesus is the source of, you know, the resurrection life of believers, the source of our life. He's the source of eternal life. Uh, so we'll never face, you know, eternal death. We'll never face that, which is eternal death in the lake of fire. And though, so Martha responds here, notice, with a confession that shows she does have this personal confidence in, in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, you know. I believe you are the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the Christ, the Greek word, the Son of God who has come into the world. So she, she's, a, she's a fully believing person. She fully believes this. She believes what he says. Then we see Jesus and Mary, uh, verses 28 through 37. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister, Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, um, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, so all this happens, you know, outside as Jesus is approaching. Martha, being the eager one, gets out there first to meet him. 
And now she goes and gets Mary and says, you know, hey, the teacher is here. He's asking about you. Uh, Jesus hadn't entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So as I hear, Martha returns to the house, calls her sister Mary aside to set up a private meeting with her, for her with Jesus. I mean, apparently the sisters, Jesus, sisters were trying to preserve a little privacy in the midst of a house full of mourners. But as we see here, Mary's departure is noted by the mourners and they wonder where's she going? Why is she leaving the house here? Uh, and they assume, you know, she's going to the tomb uh, where, uh, where uh, um, her brother is entombed and uh, decides to follow her. And when Mary uh, reaches Jesus, she falls at his feet and says exactly what Martha does. You know, back in verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Um, when Jesus saw the weeping, I say here, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. This word translated deeply moved conveys a strong sense of emotional indignation, anger, and outrage. So that's a little strange. We, I mean, you don't maybe get that from the, the English here, but that seems to be the idea behind the Greek word here. Um, he was deeply moved in spirit. It seems to suggest some sort of frustration or anger or outrage, indignation. But what was Jesus outraged and troubled about? <laughs> that's a tough one. Some think that Jesus is moved by their grief and is consequently angry with sin, sickness, and death in this fallen world that wrecks so much havoc and generates so much sorrow. And we can identify with that, you know. Hey, you know, when we see people suffering and dying in this world, uh, it's, it's, it's tough. It's grieving. Uh, it's upsetting. Uh, we wish things weren't like that. You know, we see these poor people over there in, in uh, Ukraine. You know, we wish that wasn't happening to them. Uh, um, I've read a lot of. I've read a lot of statements. I was reading one to my wife from a missionary there. You know, and what they're going through, and what pastors are going through, and so forth. There's a huge number of Baptist churches in Ukraine. A couple thousand. Uh, uh, Baptist churches, a lot of, you know, evangelical believers in Ukraine, actually. And, uh, you know, it's terrible what could happen to them, what, what might uh, happen to them, because 
there's no religious toleration for much in Russia these days. You know, it's unfortunately the the uh, Russian Orthodox Church is pretty much in bed with the government. They were in bed with the communists, and so there's not really much real hardly religious freedom there or anything. They're persecuted pretty much. So you know, we're we we you know he's a Jesus is a human and God. <laughs> So we can, we can, you know, we might be able to grasp that uh, just as we are grieved and upset and moved by sickness and death and, and these kinds of things, they, they create a sorrow even for us and so forth. That's one possibility. Others think that the anger is directed at the unbelief itself. That is, men and women before him were grieving like pagans who have no hope. <laughs> so those are a little different, you know. I mean, you see I'm struggling here because the text doesn't tell us. <laughs> you know, it just says he was deeply moved and troubled in spirit, and you know, troubled in spirit and moved in spirit and troubled. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it could be that he's moved by the human condition and what's happening it could be he's moved by the fact that there is such unbelief, the way these people are grieving, like people who have no hope. Um, maybe that's, that's, uh, that's part of it. Uh, some suggest maybe there's elements of both of those here. I'm not sure. It's, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, um, unlike humans... God can be, um, God can be uh, angry and loving at the same time. God has a holy anger about sin and things, and He can love. He also loves. He loves the world, but He also hates sin and He's angry about. It. So God's capable of both, and maybe there's a sum of both here. This situation, what? it caused Jesus to weep. Um, the same, the same uh, sin and death, the same unbelief maybe that prompted Jesus' outrage also generates his grief. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's hard to know what he's weeping about here. It, it doesn't, you wouldn't think he'd be weeping for Lazarus. <clears throat> he knows he's going to raise him. Uh, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's, he knows that. He's already said, you know, he's going to do that. So would he be weeping for uh, Lazarus? Most likely he's weeping because of the things we've said. But I have to admit, it's hard to pin down the exact situation here. That, But these things could cause him. The unbelief could cause this. The, 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 the situation of the grief of the people and the sickness, all those things could cause Jesus to weep. Verse 36, Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus' display of emotion produces two responses among the Jews. To some, his test tears testify how he loved Lazarus. Of course, Jesus did love him. But his tears were not for Lazarus in the way they imagined. 
Others wonder why such a miraculous healer as Jesus could not have prevented Lazarus from dying. So they were puzzled and confused. You know, still even to ask the question in this way uh, betrays a kind of a massive unbelief. Um, it's the unbelief of a person whose faith does not rest on who Jesus is and, and, uh, and what He's revealed of the Father, but it rests on just the miracle-working power. I mean, they, they, they kind of believe in Jesus, but they're just, they're just resting on this. You know, he, he's, he's a miracle worker. Why couldn't He have done this? Uh, what I'm saying is we've seen this kind of faith from right from John chapter 2 right forward about, remember in John 2 it said, many believed in Jesus, but he didn't commit himself to them. And we've seen this kind of faith that is, is just sort of based on miracles, seeing what Jesus can do, the miraculous. And when those things go away, they fade away. You know, we, we draw a comparison to the modern kind of miracle crusades and things like that that uh, you know attract large crowds and arenas, people come to be healed and so forth like that. But, you know, unfortunately a lot of those people are not really in churches. They're not really, you know, they're just, we can understand they're attracted by the miracles and all that kind of thing. Uh, people were attracted to Jesus because He could feed them the 5,000 and so forth. That attracts people. So the miracles, you know, that's, that's better than no faith at all. <laughs> but it's kind of weak faith. It's kind of meager faith. And Jesus has already said, and He'll say again, you know, genuine faith is demonstrated by those who obey My commandments and follow Me and so forth. So this kind of meager faith is always requiring miracles and so forth. Uh, and so this unbelief, that these people have is the reason that we're going to see in the very next verse that uh, Jesus has moved again. He's, he's kind of outraged. It's the same word. Uh, let's notice that Jesus and Lazarus, verses 38 through 44. Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. That's that same word, Greek word, that suggests we talked about troubled, indignation, sort of anger. So, you know, Jesus is looking at these people, but there's just a lot of unbelief here. Um, you know, they really don't, they really haven't come to trust Him. Like Martha says, you know, when she sees, you know, I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God. There, there's real, you know, faith, real belief. He's, he's moved and troubled by the unbelief that we see here. So he comes to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. He says, take away the stone. This is, uh, here's an example of what that probably looked like, one of the rolling stone tombs. This is near Megiddo, but there's a number of these in Israel today that still are there. And so... Uh, um, during this period of Israel's history, the way they treated the dead was, uh, if you were, had some money, had enough money, 
you would put the body in a tomb like this. And it usually would be a family tomb. And so you'd have several places. It'd be like what we call it, what a mausoleum today or something, you know, where you would put a body inside and so forth. Um, so they would lay these bodies out on, you know, these, this, these stones, concrete kind of uh, stuff here like this. And what you would do is let the bodies decompose for like a year. And then you would take the bones and put them in a box, a burial box. And, you know, so keep that box. So we, we found lots of these boxes. You know, there's lots of these boxes around. Um, in fact, one of the problems with, with uh, one of the problems in recent years, it's always been a problem, is fake objects, fake objects. So there, there's a whole kind of industry of people creating fake archaeological objects. And uh, so that's a tough thing. You have to, you know, have to try to determine are these things real. And one of the reasons this comes about is because they lose what they're called. They, they don't have any provenance. That's a big technical word for you really can't trace the history of them. So some antique dealer has this object and says, look what I've got. This is... This is, uh, this is uh, Peter's thigh or something, you know. <laughs> well, you know, you didn't find it in a grave. You didn't, you know, that's the problem. These things, if you find these things, you know, at, at a site, in a grave or something, you can be kind of sure, you can date, you can figure out what they are. But there's all kinds of objects found that, that just turn up. And they turn up in some dealer or someplace. Uh, usually in the Middle East, somewhere in, in around Palestine, and and they they're hard to trace, they're hard to figure. And I just, you read about these things all the time. There's manuscripts like that that are. One I was thinking about one of these days doing a lesson on the Gospel of Jesus' wife. You ever heard of that? The Gospel of Jesus' wife. <laughs> well, there was one of these that, that was around a few years ago that caused tremendous sensation. It fooled a lot of people, or at least they, should, they shouldn't have been fooled, but it was supposed to be an ancient manuscript that mentioned the fact that Jesus had a wife. Isn't that the premise of that, uh, what's that movie? The Vinci Code. What? The Vinci Code. The Vinci Code. Isn't that the premise of one of that, that he, he married Mary Magdalene? And so forth, like that. Well, this is this is that, and there's just a whole. It's kind of a, a very fascinating story about how this was done, who it fooled, and all that kind of stuff. Well, getting back to my topic here, they found a burial box that's supposed to be the burial box of Jesus's brother, you know, James. You know, so there's been debate about that one. It's all come. But anyway, they, they, they are some genuine burial boxes, and they put, the, put the, they put the bones in there, and that's where they kept them, like that. They only did this for a hundred or so years, uh, uh, where they put the body in one of these tombs, and, you know, and this is where they laid Jesus. This is a kind of tomb that we know about where they laid Jesus there in a tomb of Joseph. You know, Joseph has a tomb. They lay him there, and, you know, and then they go to find him, and, and he's not. 
So, uh, and that's the stone you roll across there. So if you ever go to Jerusalem, you'll go to a place called the Garden Tomb. There's a, uh, a tomb outside on the north side of Jerusalem, outside the northern wall there, that some people think is the tomb of Jesus where he was actually laid called the Garden Tomb. And you'll see this kind of stone there and thing like preserved and all that kind of thing. I'm convinced it's not, but <laughs> it's not the real tomb, but uh, it is a replica of what, then this is the same kind of thing. There's a number of these that, that this is what they did for 150, 200 years uh, during this period. So that's what he's talking about when he says, uh, take away the stone. So roll the stone away. He's been put in there, but the body is four days, so it should be decaying. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did not I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Martha's objection shows that she did not understand from her earlier conversation with Jesus that he was going to raise her brother immediately. As I say, the Jews did not embalm bodies in the first century. Burial usually occurred, therefore, on the day of Death, bodies were wrapped in strips of cloth, aromatic spices, sprinkled among the bindings to dispel the odor. This is what we know in the case of Jesus. The women come, we'll see later, they come to the tomb. They didn't get the spices on there that first time when he was buried. Verse 41, so they took away the stone. Then Jesus stood up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So apparently our Lord had already asked for the Lazarus life, and now all he must do is thank his Father for the answer. We can see from verse 11 that the raising of Lazarus had been determined for some time. Remember it said there, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. So it's been determined for some time before Jesus ever arrived in Bethany. We should not think that Jesus' public prayer is a matter of playing the gallery. It's really demonstrating his intimate relationship with the Father, which he's been talking about throughout this gospel. John chapter 5, you know, especially. Um, and it shows that Jesus doesn't do anything by himself. Another point he's made in John 5, 19. Everything he does is in conjunction with the Father. Remember theologians, the, the orthodox doctrine here is that Jesus is a human and he is God. He has a human nature and a divine nature, but there's only one will of God, one will of God, one will of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now Jesus has a human will, but that will is always in conformity to that divine will. And what he's showing here is that uh, what, he, what Jesus does is always in conformity with the Father. They never disagree. They, they don't have any disagreement among them. Our, our Lord is hoping that, um, well, some, that some of his readers, as a result of his prayer, believe that, he'll be, that he's been sent by the Father. Father, I thank you. You've heard me. So, he, it, you know, they want him to, they want, he's trying to, show them that he has been sent by the Father. He is who he says he is. Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I say, though it's not, you know, John's point, it's often been remarked that the authority of Jesus is so great that had he not specified Lazarus, all the tombs would have given up their dead to resurrection life. Maybe so. Uh, so apparently these grave clothes were not so restrictive uh, that he couldn't, you know, kind of shuffle out of the tomb or, or get out some, maybe he had some help, I don't know. But uh, apparently he can kind of get out uh, of the tomb. Uh, we see the consequences there in verses 45 through 47 then. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Some. Many. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So, as we've seen before, the words and works of Jesus caused a division among the Jews. No different here. As a result of this remarkable miracle, many of them put their faith in Jesus. The genuineness of their faith is not discussed, but it's certainly superior, we assume, to those who went to the Pharisees. The contrast here suggests that they didn't really believe in spite of the miracle. They see, <laughs> they see Lazarus raised from the dead, but uh, they still don't believe. Uh, I mean, that's what, that's what we think naturally. We, we naturally think, you know, that miracles are convincing. We naturally think that, that miracles are convincing. That, and we hear that from unbelievers all the time. You know, if I could just see if God would just reveal Himself, if God would just show me, if God would, you know, just do this or just do that, I'd believe. You know, we hear, I've, I've, you hear that all the time. But if we think about it theologically, no, that's not true because it's depravity. The man without the Spirit, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. So, you know, all the miracles in the world, and, and you know, and that's... That's explained very carefully by Jesus in Luke 16. You remember kind of the story about the blind man, I mean the rich man and, and, and Lazarus. Uh, and so they die and, uh, you know, the beggar goes to Abraham, bosom, you know, and he, he goes to Abraham and he says, you know, I mean, I mean the, he goes there and he's there and, the, and, and the, the rich man is, is suffering. He's in torment. He's in hate. He's suffering. And he calls out to Abraham, remember, and says, remember that? And says, you know, would you just some, send someone, someone to tell my brothers, you know, tell my family about this place, you know? Just tell them, you know, what this is like. And do you remember the answer there? is, you know, he says, remember the answer there? He says, uh, Abraham tells him, you know, uh, 
if they don't believe the scriptures, if they don't believe what the Bible says, they won't believe even if somebody came back from the dead. <laughs> well, you'd think, yeah, yeah, I'd believe. <laughs> sure, if somebody came back from the dead, you know, uh, hey, we'd all believe, you know. But in that story, Jesus says, no, they wouldn't. They wouldn't believe even if somebody came back from the dead. So it shows you the problem that people have for believing is not that they don't have enough substance, they don't have enough truth, they don't have enough facts. It's a moral problem. It's that we are depraved inside. We have a hostility toward the truth of God, toward the things of God. And so we see an example of it right here that you would think anybody who saw that miracle <laughs> would have said, oh man, he's the real deal. You know, I, <laughs> you'd think anybody would say that. But can you believe, you know, that there's people here? No. They, they seem to go to the Pharisees and told them what they had done. Well, what, is this, what reaction does this create? Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they ask. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. <laughs> As I say here, the Pharisees could take no action against Jesus alone. I mean... The, these people go and tell the Pharisees about this. So they ally themselves to the chief priest and they call a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin consisted of the chief priest, elders, and teachers of the law. Um, so that's the, you have that kind of laid out there in Acts 4. So there's kind of three divisions here. The chief priest, elders, and teachers of the law. 70 total along with the chief priest, normally 70, 71 with the high priest. Remember, it had legislative, judicial, and executive powers through the high priest. So the, the, uh, the Jews had some autonomy here. The Romans let the Sanhedrin control in Judea especially. They had a lot of control. They could control affairs and stuff like that. So they have a lot of power here. They don't have the power to issue an uh, execution order, as we know, but they have tremendous power. And this consists, this legislative, judicial, executive power, uh, made up of the chief priest, also called rulers sometimes, included the captain of the temple guard, leaders of the 24 weekly courses, and certain other officials associated with the administration of the temple. So one group here is what's called the chief priests many times. Who are these chief priests? Well, they are leaders of what's called these 24 weekly courses. So the way they had this, this divided up in the temple, when priests served in the temple, remember in the temple it was sons of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood who served. But by this time, there's lots of these people. Thousands of these descendants of Aaron. And they can't all serve. Remember John the Baptist's father was chosen to serve. Usually this is by lot. 
And the way that works is they divided these Aaronic priests up into 24 groups. And your group, he was of the group of Abijah, that group serves twice a year, one week and then another week. So you have 48 weeks in the Jewish year, lunar, lunar year. So you, you serve one week and then you serve an, a, another week. So you have two weeks out of the week you're serving. And uh, if you're chosen to go in and make, chosen by a lot to go in and make the sacrifices and do all that, you, get, you might do that. You might never do that. Uh, so you have those. That's the chief priest. That includes also what who's called the captain of the temple guard, who is really the second to the high priest, and the guy who's in charge of that Levitical police force. Remember, the, the Jews have their own police force. that they're, they're the ones who are sent to arrest Jesus, and they do arrest Jesus eventually. Uh, not the Romans, but the, the Jews arrest him. And uh, so he's second in command. He's there. You have these uh, elders. Uh, I say here, um, they, that is these chief priests, these priests, were mostly, if not exclusively, Sadducees drawn from the extended family of the high priest. The elders were tribal and family heads that formed a land, landed aristocratic class of mixed or few theological views. The teachers of the law were also called scribes or lawyers who were experts in the interpretation of the Mosaic law. Most, if not all, of the scribes in the Sanhedrin were Pharisees. So you've got Pharisees in there, but most of them, and the powerful people, are the Sadducees. And so the Pharisees have to go to the Sadducees and have to go to the Sanhedrin to get this, get this accomplished. And they're very upset. You know, what are we accomplishing here? This man's performing many signs and miracles. And, you know, if we let him go on, we haven't been able to kill him. The Romans will come, take away. When they, when, when they rhetorically ask, what are we accomplishing? They're referring to their efforts up to this point to deal with the Jesus situation. I mean, they haven't been able to deny his miracles. Uh, and they fear that this messianic uh, Fervor will get out of hand. You know, this could get out of hand. Roman, this is the Pax Romana. Roman wants peace. They don't want these people rising up. I mean, they've put down some of these in the past already uh, in, in Israel uh, before Jesus came along. So this is not a new thing. And, and, the, and, the, and the Sanhedrin is concerned about this will get out of hand. And they'll lose their autonomy. They're, as I say, they have this kind of semi-autonomous state. They're controlling things. They're running things. I mean, obviously they'd like to kick out the Romans, but you know, they, don't, they, don't want to, they don't want the Romans to come in and just uh, remove them from power completely. So their concern is not primarily with the nation as a whole, but their own positions, their own power. Verse 49, Then one of them named Cephas, or Caiaphas, I'm sorry, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. I say here, Caiaphas, the high priest and president of the Sanhedrin, came into that office around A.D. 18. 
Remember, we're talking about AD 30 here. Served to AD 36. His father-in-law, Annas, had been high priest before him from 6 to 15. He was the high priest that year, meaning that that particular year, our memorial year. Not that the office changed hand every year. It didn't. His solution was, it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. The Romans were known to depose the high priest if they were displeased. So he's saying all that we need is to sacrifice this one life. All we need is a scapegoat. So if we do away with Jesus, the problem's going to disappear. Verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So I guess they're more serious now, you know, about laying out strategic plan. Here's what we're tactical. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the steps we're going to take. They'd always wanted to kill him, but now they're really getting serious here. When John saw, uh, wrote this gospel many years later, he observed that the words of Caiaphas had a far wider application than he had intended. Caiaphas prophesied better than he knew. In his own mind, he was only suggesting a political expedient solution to the problem of Jesus. Yet he was unconsciously predicting the death of Jesus as a sacrifice for the sins of the nation and for the scattered children of God. A reference to Gentile Christians. You remember 1016. Uh, I have other sheep that we talked about. Um, I mean, it may be strange here to talk about uh, those who are children of God before they're actually gathered as verse 52, when he says, um, it's not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God. It may, you know, it may seem strange to talk about children of God before, but this is in line with you know, what we know about predestination election in this gospel in our own lives. We know that there are children of God out there who haven't come to Christ yet. You know, there's, there's people out there who will come to Christ one day we hope to reach some of them here, you know, uh, to be a witness and testify and present the gospel. We know there are children of God scattered out there throughout the world, and that's what he's saying here. Um, so, and as we noticed before, remember Jesus said, you remember in John chapter 10, about, about the, the sheep pen and the shepherd. Remember he says uh, uh, that he had sheep that are not of this, this pen of not of this group. He's talking about Gentiles there. Um, and so he's, he's emphasized, that, remember he said, John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So he's got these people out there. It's just a matter of time until they are brought to Christ. Um, so now they've made the decision, we're going to kill Jesus at the earliest possible uh, such time we get, as soon as we get. And then we see to Jesus, 1154, Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, um, where he stayed with his disciples. So this is a 
probably the area we're talking about. You can see it's just northeast of Jerusalem, just northeast of Bethany here. Um, I said somehow the plan of the Sanhedrin to kill him became known to Jesus. Nicodemus? I don't know. People of Judea must mean the residents of Jerusalem since Jesus withdraws to a village called Ephraim. Uh, Ephraim, probably the Old Testament Ephron, maybe. Twelve, about 12 miles. So that's, uh, that's probably what people think it is, about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. Um, so he was far enough away to be safe for the present time, yet he's close enough to attend the Passover at the hour determined by the Father. Let's look at this last little thing here, I guess. To the, Jew, to the Passover pilgrims, 1155 through 57. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. So we're talking here now, we're now uh, about right there at the Passover time, the spring of AD 30, you know, March, April, that time period in AD 30. Um, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as, as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Is, isn't he coming to the festival at all? Remember, they, all the Jewish males were supposed to come to those three festivals each year. One of them was Passover. But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. So I say here, after a period of unknown length, we come to the spring festival of Passover. Many Jews made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem and were curious as to the whereabouts of Jesus. The need for a ceremonial purification before the Passover is stipulated in Numbers 9-6, at least that's the first time, for those who had contracted defilement of some sort. Usually it was in connection with maybe a, a dead body. Uh, Numbers 9 says, Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with water on the third day and on the seventh day, then they will be clean. If they do not purify themselves on the third and seventh days, they will not be clean. So this could be a week-long purification. If you came in contact with a dead body, you couldn't come to the festival. So you in case you had been you know, uh, defiled some way, people would come to Jerusalem and they would, uh, they would uh, purify themselves. Now, how would they do this? There are, there are something called mikvahs. We've, I, I don't know if I've shown you this before, but these are uh, in the ground, usually concrete things with steps down. There are steps going down and steps coming up. So you go down, you walk down. This is covered with water. You walk down into the water. You dip yourself, immerse yourself. Then you walk back out. Here's an even bigger one just south of the temple. One of the things they've discovered in recent years in excavating around the temple area that they've been able to do. When I was there, this one was not even excavated at the time in 2000. So this has been discovered since then. So here's one of those where they would walk down the steps. 
We assume they had some sort of partition covering of cloth for modesty and so forth like that. But people would walk down in there, uh, purify themselves, and come back out. There's lots of these around there. We kind of assume that's where these baptisms took place on the day of Pentecost. There's lots of these mikvahs around Jerusalem. They're around Israel even because of the need for purification. Um, now Jesus, of course, has no need to purify himself, so he doesn't have to go early to this thing. Okay, let's stop here for tonight. And that'll take us through chapter 11, and we'll come then to the supper at Bethany in chapter 12. Thank you very much.